This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 299 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome onto the show the men behind Down to Fight Fire, Carl, Scott, Ash, and Todd. So I was very honored to be on their show a couple weeks before recording this, and when we sat down for this one, it was right when the very first announcement of the isolations hit for the coronavirus. Um, so they all sat together in one room around their microphone. I sat here in Florida. Um, they're up in Canada and had a great conversation with them. Discussed a host of topics, especially the area of volunteer firefighting. Their particular organization holds their bar very high. They have a lot of ownership on their own fitness, on their own training. So you're going to hear some very diverse philosophies on that kind of ownership, even in departments where men are getting paid purely for the calls they actually run. So a great conversation. As I've said now for 299 episodes, if you could take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to the podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. The five star ratings, every single five star rating that we get does elevate the podcast higher up the virtual charts, which makes us more visible for people looking for a podcast like this. And just to reiterate, this is a free library. As you can tell by 299, the next one's going to be 300 guests. And my only goal is to get each one of these incredible men and women's stories and life's work to the ear holes of every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear it. This is free. All I ask is that you guys help me share whatever medium you can find. So with that being said, I introduce to you Carl, Scott, Ash, and Todd from Down to Fight Fire. Enjoy.
All right, guys. Uh, I want to say welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As we just turned off the video, I saw that you guys are at least six feet away from each other around this microphone. So I want to first commend you on your social isolation. Absolutely. Yeah, we <laughs> we were just joking about that, actually. Uh, Todd's sitting on Scott's lap. <laughs> so where are we finding you guys geographically on planet Earth today? Uh, you can find us in uh, Oliver, B.C., in Canada. Brilliant. All right. So because there's four, obviously, this is a, a, a different dynamic to some of the other podcasts. If you want to take it in turns and just kind of spend a little bit of time each saying who you are and your your kind of early childhood, so kind of family dynamic and what led you into the fire service. Sounds good. I will start. I guess so. My name's Carl. Um, I, uh, I've been a firefighter now for around four years, coming on five, I think, nearly now. Um, I was born in England, in the same town as you there, James, in Bath. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, I was, born, uh, I was born in a very interesting area, a low-income area, um, kind of dragged up my way through uh, school, etc., um, I enjoyed helping people and I enjoyed solving problems and all of my careers that I've done since then have kind of been around that. And so when I actually moved to Canada, uh, I moved to this small town and saw this great group of guys that were going around on Christmas actually. And, uh, they were driving a, uh, the fire trucks and, uh, some of our other older units playing Christmas carols with uh, the chief dressed as Santa stuffed up on top of the, the open cab really? um, truck. Stuffed? <laughs> real Santa. Is Santa. I mean, real Santa on top of the truck. So He was pretending to be the real Santa. Is that what you're saying for all the kids out there? Correct. That's correct. <laughs> that's actually what I meant. That's actually what I meant. So... Uh, that that to me was the start of kind of hey this uh, this looks interesting looks like these guys are going out spreading some cheer this looks fun and so that actually was what initially started me off down the path towards being this and then once I was in you realize you know that you you become a member of the family and you enjoy it more and you realize the things you're doing are very helpful and yeah that was kind of that was my start anyway brilliant I just stayed on that for a second. So we grew up in Bath. Which part of Bath did you grow up in? I grew up in Whiteway. Okay. So because I was in the, when I went to school, I was in the Lark Hall area, which also wasn't the most affluent area of Bath either. So. Yeah, I think weren't you guys terrible at rugby? Oh, we were terrible. <laughs> we were terrible at most sports actually. <laughs> we only had concrete to play on, so it's hard to be good at rugby when you're tackling on concrete. So. <laughs> sounds like sounds soft to me I don't know. <laughs> yeah it was uh when we was it was kind of classed as one of the one of the rougher areas around there um but you know it during that it definitely helps to it helps build character that's for sure um you learn a lot of things you learn to see a lot of things in different ways and when you do start to uh climb the ladder a little bit you really appreciate it a lot more so at least from my perspective right now just staying with you one more time um what about the british fire service had you ever thought about joining them i actually hadn't no um i never did it was it wasn't ever anything that was ever on my radar honestly um i didn't understand it uh, i 
I appreciated it and respected it, but it was never something there that was kind of a career path that was put in front of me. Um, it was never really discussed in any any of the kind of, um, I guess, job fair type style things that were going on. Uh, I think if at the time I had thought a little bit more about it, maybe I would have tried. But uh, yeah, no, it was it was never, never on my radar. Interesting. All right. Well, then we'll move on to whoever's next. Sure. I'll go next. It's uh, Ash. Um, I've been with the department here for uh, about six years. Um, previous to here, I was on search and rescue for um, probably the better part of that as well. Um, born and raised in Oliver. Um, came in a, say, a middle-class family. Um, working father, stay-at-home mother. Um, yeah, I kind of got into the search and rescue side of life due to somebody I knew saying, hey, you should come check this out. It's kind of cool. So I went and checked it out and it was kind of cool. Not a lot of call volume over on that side of life. And then just through whatever, I started to meet some people on the department here and realized that, uh, hey, this is way more geared up for what I'm looking for. Um, definitely the call volume is way higher here. Um, the patient contact is way, way better here. You, you can get out there and and it's just a little bit more switched on. So I uh, kind of jump, jump ship and I've been here ever since. Brilliant. Yeah, I can relate to that. When I was a lifeguard, I used to stand on the side of the pool just wishing someone would drown because I was so bored. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right, well, then moving on. Scott or Todd? Uh, yeah, Todd here. Um, well, I guess with me, I grew up, uh, I grew up on a farm. Um, and my dad was a firefighter. Um, so I kind of grew up in the hall as a rug rat. I was always run around the hall when he was out on calls. Um, you know, they'd throw a broom in my hand and make me start sweeping and cleaning stuff while they were out or when they got back. So definitely grew up around it. I joined the uh, forestry fire service in 96 for uh, a number of years. And then I actually joined the, the fire department in 98. Um, and yeah, I've been with him for well, 22 to 23 years now, um, so quite quite some time. Um, yeah, it was, it was always just a paid on call service. Uh, I'm also a paramedic. I've been a paramedic for 20 years now. Uh, I just kind of fell into that job. Uh, I was in the gym one day with one of my buddies, and he said, "Well, you're a fireman. You should try it and join the station." And I tried, and absolutely loved it. So right. So, it was, uh, are, you, are you technically volunteer, or are you actually full time as a medic? I'm a full-time paramedic. Okay. Yeah, but it's a, it's a different service. So we're a provincial uh, ambulance service, whereas our fire department is municipal uh, paid on call. Gotcha. Brilliant. All right, and then Scott. Yeah, so I, I also, uh, like Ash, I grew up in Oliver. Um, everything around here is kind of farming, so that's what my family was, farming family. Um, when I was in high school, I started uh, taking martial arts. It's kind of roundabout path, but I... I started taking martial arts and I, I started enjoying like kind of the aspect of the uh, training and and the physicality of it. So I actually got into security work with a, a kind of a goal to get into law enforcement one day, which I did. Um, and I really enjoy like kind of the action side of things uh, throughout martial arts, you know, jujitsu, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then when I moved back here, 
uh, I thought, well, the fire department, they're, they're pretty busy. I, I can see them, you know, they're, they're, they're fairly busy regularly. I like the teamwork side, I like to help people. So I ended up joining up and that was 12 years ago now. And I'm currently the training captain here. So I get to do some of that teaching that I like to do also um, from the martial arts side. So um, mixing a lot of that stuff together. Fantastic. Well, what's interesting right off the bat is that there's four four men with four very different stories. One, you know, was was raised in a fire service family. Another one moved countries. So it really does kind of show the diversity that we do have in the fire service, you know, and, and that you can come from all walks of life, but still have that same calling. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that uh, you, you kind of you come for the you come for the flair and the action, and you stay for the family and the action afterwards. I think you know that the family keeps you tied back in. Um, obviously, the ties of the community and helping people, everything it's it's fantastic. But it's really it's the it's the family atmosphere that keeps you there. Um, and also, we are very lucky in the in the sense that our training team is very on the ball. Um, and they're always looking for new tactics, new techniques, uh, or even just revamping some older stuff, because uh, obviously old stuff definitely still works. But having that is a drive for everyone. It really helps keep the seats um, full in our firewall constantly. So being part of that um, and progressively keeping that training hard has been a really big asset for me. And it makes me want to come. It makes me want to do these things. And yeah, it definitely feels like, again, that family atmosphere is always what drags you back in. Right. So what I'd love to do then is get you to describe the dynamic of your specific fire department. Obviously, we have, you know, we've had a whole diverse group of, of members of the fire service from wildfire to, you know, paid on call, seasonal, the whole, the whole shebang. But it sounds like you guys are obviously functioning as a very, um, aggressive, well-trained volunteer department. So tell me, you know, how, how you staff it and, and how you bolster Manning when you get bigger incidents. Sure. So we have right now we're, we're currently training up, uh, five new recruits, uh, which would bring us to about a 35, 35 person, um, uh, company here. Uh, like, Carl said, our, our training, I think, is what uh, not sets us apart, but it, it really keeps people drawn to, to what we, we do here. Um, the, the way that we go about training, the, the aggressiveness, like you mentioned, that's, that's a, a really key factor here. Um, <clears throat> we've adapted a bit of a layering process, uh, which we start with a basic scale, add, add on more, add on more and then bring everything together. So seasonally, um, like we've got uh, our wildfire season is going to be coming up. So we're going to be attacking uh, that training coming up shortly once we get some direction on what we're actually allowed to do as a group. <laughs> so right now, this is all kind of challenging for us as a department because we are known for very aggressive training. Uh, we're a very aggressive department, which, uh, you know, again, keeps the membership alive. Um, idle hands isn't good so the more that we can get out there and train the better off it is and right now we're going through a, a bit of a process and trying to figure out what we're actually able to do we are an essential service but with this COVID-19 happening I mean getting 35 people together to train is kind of going against the directive so um yeah we're in a bit of a tough spot right right now and uh it takes away 
what we as a group are kind of known for. Yeah, and this interesting with this this uh, virus. I saw Orange County in uh, California have just done this, and then one of my friends in Florida here said they just did it in their department too. They discovered that a firefighter was testing positive for it, and so every person that he'd come in contact with, or she, I don't know if it was male or female, was sent home to self-isolate. Well, you take a smaller department like yours or where I work most recently, you do that with those numbers, well, you just wiped out the entire department. So where do you draw the line, you know, between self-isolating and obviously the first responder community where, you know, we have to kind of disregard some of the, the regular protocol to actually be able to do our jobs? Absolutely. Like we, uh, in my job, <clears throat> they've just recently changed uh, if we start having symptoms uh, to go home and quarantine for 10 days versus the 14 days because we're in healthcare. So it's a slightly different uh, self-quarantine versus general public. Um, but then after that 10 days, we need to be totally um, asymptomatic and uh, then wear a mask when we return to work. But because of those short numbers, they've had to cut that, that initial 14-day self-isolation now down to 10. And then we've had been having discussions in the department of, okay, well, well what's the next step? Because the calls aren't going to stop. So we need to really start triaging how we attack these calls. You know, minimum amount of, of, of people is going to be mandatory um, uh, washing and decon on all the apparatuses. Um, you know, maybe in our volunteer department, maybe we need to set up some sort of a platoon system where, you know, there's a certain set amount of people there for uh, four days at a time. And then that way you can control your risk of exposure and cleaning <clears throat> schedule a lot tighter. So it's, it's a lot to figure out. Like you said, if, if we start getting ill through the ranks of a small department, we'll have nobody left. Yeah. Now, what, what shift schedule do you guys follow? As uh, Well, right, right now with the fire department, we're still just all, we only have uh, two full-time chiefs, and then the rest were all paid on call uh, in my department. And just, just to clarify, so I, I'm, I was a member of the Oliver department with the, the guys up here, but now I'm, I'm in uh, Osuyas, which is just, 20 minutes south of us um, on our department down there. Okay. So so you guys, I mean, let me frame it a different, different way then. How many days of the week do you find yourself at the firehouse for a full shift? Oh, we we, uh, we actually don't, like we just, we, we literally are on pager all the time. So we don't, we have no full shifts other than um, Todd's department. But only those two members. But only two members. Okay. So everything we do, like training wise, uh, we, get a, we get a stipend every month sort of uh, just enhance pay a little bit to to do those um, to plan training and to do some paperwork and stuff but everything call wise is all pager okay because i know that there's different models we're here in marion county you actually go for a full shift if you're a volunteer but um any of you can you can make it a shorter shift but some people do the 24s the reason i ask is definitely in the the career side the as many of the episodes I've covered using you know, in this podcast, the average first responder's resilience is actually diminished through the shifts, through the de sleep deprivation. And so that's what's crazy about this time is I've, I've been kind of pointing this out for a while now. We want our first responders to be the most resilient so we can go out into this, this craziness and still function. The same with the medical um, professions as well. Yet you have these doctors working these crazy, you know, 60-hour weeks, these residents. And so I'm wondering if after this, we're going to realize that 
you know, we are kind of destroying the very men and women that we're expecting to be still standing when everyone else has fallen. Yeah, exactly. Like I know with, with my career as a paramedic, like we're seeing that now, like our guys are dropping like flies. We're starting to get more medics who are having just minor symptoms of, you know, cough, cold, and flu could be allergy season. Um, but a lot of this is, is our shift patterns or sleep deprivation. Cause we work, um, four days on four days off for the majority of our, our what we call alpha shifts. And there are two days, two nights. And it's a horrible shift pattern for, um, for that sleep deprivation thing. So it's, I think when you look at our volunteer departments, it's, you know, it's tough too. Cause you know, we hear the slightest little noise at night when we're sleeping from our page or somebody sits on the radio mic accidentally. Yeah. And all of a sudden there's three, five guys up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't slept since Thursday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we talked about uh, when we, did the podcast with you um we have that duty officer um um schedule so we have a guy who that's their job for the week who stands for the answer any calls answer any uh, pages and uh this week it's ash and yeah when you're the duty officer basically you're, you're waiting for the you're waiting for that something to happen so you're always on edge not sleeping very well yeah no it's definitely a thing i think you know we're gonna have a lot of lessons but some of us will learn. The rest will just go back to doing it the same way they always did it. You know what I mean? But there are going to be some glaring lessons that I hope, you know, the human race is going to learn from. But yeah, I mean, the the men and women that we need to be responding, we need to create an environment for them to thrive. And that's not the case at the moment, especially in the career side. Um, well, I want to transition to, to your observations as volunteer or paid on call firefighters um, as far as some of the challenges to to um you know the training side and then and then uh uh you know some of your 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 goals as far as where you want to be because i mean it's a very very different thing apples to oranges really as far as career because career we show up for 24 hours and you know we do have access to training on a regular basis and you know the equipment that we need um so tell me kind of the 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 pros and cons if you like of of volunteer um firefighting for you guys i think on the well Pro side with volunteers, it's good because we get a really mixed bag of of people. Like we get paramedics like Todd, we get um, mechanics, we get uh, construction people. Everybody kind of comes together. Uh, and I sometimes, you know, from what I see, some in some of the the paid departments, uh, the guy comes out of at a high school, goes into college for for a little while, maybe gets a trade, but sometimes just goes right into uh, the fire academy and then becomes a firefighter. Um, maybe so his life is kind of being firefighting. Whereas, uh, what we notice with the volunteers, at least in our hall, and I think Todd's as well, is that we get this kind of, kind of a weird mix of people, but that mix works really well. Like if we're on a structure fire and one of the construction guys says, Hey, that, I mean, there's a story I always tell that one of our guys said, Hey, that parapet wall is about to fall. And this is when I first started. And I'm like, what, what's a parapet wall? <laughs> He's like the thing that's about to fall. And like literally two minutes later, this the parapet wall falls on the street in front of us. So that sort of stuff um, really, really helps us as a team to get together and work, uh, work well. It's a weird mix of people, but when they get together and, and work, it, it works well. Yeah. Now, what about challenges for training? Because I mean, I think that that's that absolutely sounds like a you know a huge leg up if you are coming from trades. And I know that a lot of the the best building construction training I have was not from textbooks; it was from the firefighters that had worked in 
you know, construction. So especially on the truck operation side where you're standing on roofs, understanding the difference between different ones and which is going to collapse under you and which you should be safe on. Um, but obviously, like you said, you guys are, are responding to the pager. What are some of the challenges to maintaining the level of training in a profession where we have so many different skills we need to oversee? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm the training captain. So what, you know, we, we train every Thursday and we, we basically train two to three hours. It used to be an hour, hour and a half um, years ago. Uh, we've we've kind of upped that a lot to about two or three hours. Uh, one thing about us is we have this uh, over by our airport. We've actually managed to um, get a bunch of land donated to us. And we've built a fairly large, well, actually a very large training facility. Um, we have essentially three burn buildings now, um, multiple search rooms, uh, an area for extrication. So on any given Thursday, what we would do is we divide our crews up into um, like squads, I guess, uh, six or seven of us with an instructor. And we uh, go through, and it's kind of like Ashford saying, we kind of do seasonal, like with wildfire season coming up, we'll concentrate more heavily on dealing with wildfires. Um, as it gets closer to winter, we'll probably start dealing with uh, uh, vehicle extrication because obviously up here, there's a lot more um, car crashes in the winter. And uh, that's kind of how I, I go with our training. We we follow NFPA stuff, but we we also kind of, we follow it fairly loosely, but we also like, make sure all the, all the checks, uh, all the boxes are checked, but we also make sure it fits in with what we need in our, in our area. Um, you know, there's, there's some, some stuff in, you know, fire manuals that we, we just don't do because we just don't have those things here. So we kind of get, we make our train fit into our, our area. Now, anyone else got anything to add to that? <clears throat> yeah, Todd here. I think also it's, uh, it's challenging because everybody's responding to the pager. You don't know always who you're going to get. Like you could have uh, a handful of, uh, of newer firefighters who aren't as experienced as the next group. Uh, so as a, as an officer, we really need to be aware of everybody's uh, abilities and limits. Uh, so you can really organize uh, the duties of those firefighters when they're on your truck. Um, and that, so that's a, an all, that's always a challenge. It changes every time the, the call goes off because, you know, the, you could have one call and three hours later have another call and you could have a completely different group of people on that truck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that before. It's an interesting point. Now, what about with the, the mental health side? Because one of the, um, I think the healing elements of being in the fire service is your crew. Now, obviously, if you've got a shitty crew, it can be a completely <laughs> cancerous thing. But the, for everyone that's found a good, cohesive crew, that's definitely a, a very um, you know, a cornerstone of mental health. But like you said, you guys are basically responding from home, doing some training together, but having that different dynamic every time the pager goes off. So what are you seeing as far as mental health amongst the men and women in your department? I mean, it's definitely a real thing. Um one thing that we as a group really tend to do is a lot of debriefing. And now that that might not be an official round table with 30 plus people and we talk it out like an actual debrief, but we will make sure that people sit down, people talk. We're very social. Um, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it would be one of those to shut up and deal with it. Where we come back, we really advocate for people to discuss the call that just happened. I mean, there's the discussion 
like what went well, what went wrong, what can we do better? But there's also just the fact of getting it out there. So the socializing after the call, the socializing after practice, um, as a leadership group, we reach out if there's been um, a questionable call, maybe somebody's seen something, maybe maybe they made a, a good choice, a bad choice, whatever it might be. We'll follow up with, with that firefighter. We'll follow up with that firefighter's wife uh, just, just to make sure that we have something in place, um, just an open dialogue. And there's also other... Um, there's other services that uh, are provided to us free of charge, which helps with the mental health side, side of life. And uh, Todd is actually a super good resource. Uh, we, we, we call on Todd uh, after almost every large, large event, um, uh, just due to personal experience and things, things that you, you learned along the way. So uh, having a resource like Todd as a, as a resource and a friend uh, really really helps on that side of life for us. Todd, I'll take your input on that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's um, like we, I always refer to it as, as bumper talk, you know, so the initial debriefing and decompression starts, you know, as that, that truck or ambulance crew, you know, like you start chatting amongst yourselves, um, you know, when you're cleaning up, when you're there, and then when you come back to the hall or station, you know, that, that expands to the other members. Um, and, it's, I found it's always very healthy to have those discussions because if you're sitting there stewing on something as manual, I wish we could have, why didn't we do it that way? And you take that home, it's just going to build and build and build. And with my experience in, in both my, my career, you know, I've personally seen it with friends where they've struggled with mental health, with uh, post-traumatic stress issues, uh, and myself, I've lived it as well. So I've finally learned that, you know, it's, this is why it's important to, to talk about it and then look for the symptoms of, you know, sleep deprivation and everything else that comes along with it. Um, so being that back to that family group that, that Carl mentioned, you know, it's, uh, it's huge. Like the volunteerism and family side is absolutely huge here. And that's why I love coming up and chatting with the guys as, as a group, you know, any shared experience, if you're comfortable talking about it, you know, it, it helps. And then if you need more help, there we do have those other avenues and, and numbers of people to talk to, the professionals. Brilliant. Now, conversely, what you guys do have, a lot of career departments don't, is that you do all live in the same kind of vicinity. So do you tend to socialize more outside the fire service? I think we socialize uh, as a fire service more. Um, like we, we have a lot more events and not like not like not necessarily charity events like a lot of departments do like we have, we'll have a what we call the kids slip and slide in the summer like where we have a big a big hill and we just literally have the you know the fire kids show up and uh, the spouses and stuff and we get together that way so there's a lot of um maybe like yeah we socialize as a whole group and everyone's allowed to come uh you know there's always kids not right now but there's always kids at the fire hall there's always uh spouses here everything's kind of open in that way. We we're really uh, encouraged that sort of uh, mentality of the whole family gets involved. But even when we, when we hire guys, uh, part of our, part of our hiring practices, we explain to them that you're not, we're not just hiring you, we're hiring your entire family. And they're kind of like, what? We're like, well, not to fight fires, but to, <laughs> but, to, but to come out and take part in, in different events. And, you know, they have to know like their spouse needs to know, like, you know, it's not mandatory, but their spouse needs to know that they're, they're also, being kind of indoctrinated into this society that we're all in. So, Absolutely. Yeah. But I think on to Scott's point on that, 
that actually has helped um, keep everyone together even further, right? Because there have been conversations I know that I've had with our listeners where um, the conversation is, hey, you know, my wife doesn't fully understand what I'm doing. Uh, she doesn't get it, um, you know, and she's maybe not completely on my side with this. Uh, what do I do? And the conversation needs to be, well, you need to introduce her to the people at the firewall. You can't, if you segment the family, then one side of the family will start to feel like they're not important. If you amalgamate all of that and you have that as one cohesive union, then everybody gets along, everyone knows each other. And more so, like to Ash's point, when it comes to support systems, it's by far superior to any other because they know and they trust and they, they understand each other. We're around each other for social events. We all get each other's personalities. We understand how each other works, which is great because then if something is off, we can see it. And then anybody in the family, regardless of whether it's a son, a wife, a husband, depending on who it is, it doesn't matter. People will reach out, make that connection and have a conversation, whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, uh, completely off the record, however it needs to be. But having that, uh, those social aspects, and we all look forward to it. We have our annual camping trips. Um, we have obviously our, our slip and slide days. And then we've got more structured events where we have our fireball event, which is a, a town event where the entire fire department and the fire families all come together. They make dinner for the town. We put on a bit of a skit and a show. And then we, we basically, you know, look after people at the event for the evening with dance and drinks and everything else. So there's, there's lots of different aspects, but that cohesion of bringing the family together, which is why in all of our posts, in our content that we put out, we talk a lot about fire family. It's not just the guys and girls you're with on scene. It's that extends back to the houses and homes as well. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I just posted that um, military reunion. There's a repost actually of a, a little boy in his martial arts class and his instructors put a blindfold on him and then the dad, you know, puts on boxing gloves and he starts talking to him. You can see the kids suddenly get it. And then he rips his blindfold off and just, I mean, heartbreaking watching him embrace his father. But that's, that's it. People, the average, you know, uh, civilian population needs to understand not only the military, which is obviously a very obvious, um, loss of that partner while they're deployed, but in the fire service and the police and dispatch and EMS and corrections that these men and women are gone for, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours, you know, if it's smoke jumpers and it might be, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. So, yeah, I mean, that is absolutely a thing. And then conversely, if they're not, the family aren't brought into that decision and kept kind of in touch with the profession, then there can also be a very negative feeling towards that profession if, if they feel like they're second to the job. Exactly. So how's it going down? You're in there, James. Um, it's good. It's just, it's, this whole thing is so bizarre. Um, I don't know. I, I just, from where I'm sitting, I see, I, I don't know how to describe it. I totally get the isolation thing. I think that, you know, spreading that curve a lot is, it makes perfect sense to me. But this feeling like if you wear a mask and wash your hands, you're going to not get the virus is so ridiculous. Like, I, I don't understand why people are being told that, that story because we're all going to get it eventually, just like every other flu season and, you know, so it's a, it's a weird thing. And, you know, this whole 
focus on um, statistics. Oh, we've got this many th- cases now. No, you've just done that many tests. That's not how many cases there are. You know what I mean? So uh, that's what's kind of getting me, this whole fear-mongering instead of, like I said, you know, bolstering fire, EMS, the hospitals, and giving them all the support and resources um, instead of acting like if you wrap everyone in a bubble that they're all going to be okay because that's just so, so ridiculous. So it's a very bizarre thing. We're trying to be part of the solution. We're, you know, isolating as much as possible, just going to the grocery store when we need to, and that's about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I hope that the other side of this, we question, you know, we put the big question out, the two big questions. Firstly, this SARS, you know, Spanish flu, cholera, they were all man-made diseases as far as our filthy either animal or hygiene practices. And then the, the resilience of the human being, like no one's talking about this is scary for America specifically because we have so many unhealthy people. You know, so maybe we should look at how we farm and feed our children in schools and all these things so that we're not wiped out by a virus that attacks weak people. But that's my uh, <laughs> that's my stance. It's true, because technically this virus is not that strong. It's it's a very mild virus. Yeah. That's what's crazy, that the world is freaking out about this. But you talk to, like, <laughs> like the breakdown of this, like, it, it's actually a very mild virus. Yeah. It's sure. just new. Yeah. yeah, and I know it's as well. Like one of the statistics is targeting smokers, you know, yeah. and it's like, well, well, you didn't stop selling tobacco, and that kills <laughs> millions of smokers. But now, because you can get it, now you're freaking out. You know what I mean? But you're fine to make money off people smoking. You just don't want to catch the disease. You know what I mean? So it's it shows to me a lot of the selfishness of of Western society as well. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see what's going to happen over the next little while. I think <clears throat> I think there's going to be a massive dynamic change. Honestly, if you look at people right now, if they're staying home for a few months, let's say, it gives those people an opportunity to say, you know what, I really don't like my job. I'm going to do something else. And then when it comes back, from back to work, I really don't like my wife. I'm getting a divorce. <laughs> you're trapped in a house with her. <laughs> but there's going to be this whole dynamic shift of hey you ready to come back to work nope i'm skilled in something else thank you i'm going to go try and do this instead. the follow-up's going to be interesting absolutely yeah. Yeah. there's going to be a very very weird dynamic shift for a lot of people and i i actually think that it's going to be positive for a lot of people if you're a, of a positive mindset of looking at this as an opportunity that you can take and run with i think it it's going to be fantastic mm-hmm. for a lot of people yeah good break yeah no yeah. I, I agree i agree 100 percent well, we mentioned about the uh, the community events, and I've got an idea, a suggestion to bring you and your families together. Um, there is an amazing, amazing movie that I stumbled across a few months ago that you guys have got to do a, a screening of. Get you know, a rent a cinema space or something. Get everyone in there. It's called Backdraft Two. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Now, the problem is you can't do it yet because there aren't enough paper products for all the tears from that heart-wrenching <laughs> story that's so well portrayed. So we're going to have to wait post-corona to, to do that. But I just thought I'd give you a you know a little leg up there on some fundraising opportunities. <laughs> I, uh, I wasn't, luckily, I wasn't subjected to that movie review. <laughs> <laughs> the boys did it and they took the bullet for me, I think, on that one. It was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but apparently the moral of the story on that one is uh, wear your fire jacket everywhere. Was that the one? Wear your fire jacket everywhere, including inside uh, diners. And also you can use your pistol to do uh, uh, positive pressure. Positive pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And just have All one right. face. It can be your happy face, your sad face, your angry face. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I would love to see in the audition for that. Okay, oh, <laughs> we must have had a Bell's palsy or something because his facial expression didn't change for an hour and a half. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I've never. I've, I literally, a very few movies have I felt that they, they literally robbed me in an hour and a half of my life. But that is <laughs> that is on the top of the trophy shelf for complete life wastage. <laughs> Fuck. Mm. Fuck. <laughs> all right well that's a good segue to, to get us uh out of that brief pause we 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 took while your uh, air compressor did its thing um so what i want to talk about is uh, uh strength and conditioning and fitness standards so obviously in the career fire service i've made my opinion very clear which is that we should have testable annual standards because if you're going to be asked to move hoses and ladders and people of a certain weight and certain, you know, uh, skill set, that it's not unreasonable to be expected to, to do that on an annual basis. Now, when you come to volunteer side, obviously that becomes a little bit more of a gray area because especially I know you guys are paid on call, but the pure volunteers aren't being paid to do it. However, there is no downside of fitness because it equals, you know, wellness and longevity as well. So, what is your department's philosophy on fitness and 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 uh, fitness standards? You know, it's it's one of those things that uh, it's not mandated through our through our uh, fire company at all. It's not something that is forced. Um, however, what we do have in place now that we didn't have prior was we now have physical testing on new recruits. Um, and then we also have that physical testing for our guys, which has only come in over the past couple of years, again, through the, uh, through the recommendations of the training department, that we have to run these annual tests that you are talking about. And it's good. It's a very strong, um, it's a very strong thing for the, for the company. It gives us all, again, being aggressive um, people, especially when it comes to the fireside, um, we're all trying to beat each other's times. We're all trying to, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a competition at the same time. You try and beat last year, of course. There's some people that do take fitness a little bit more serious than others, absolutely. Um, and we all understand that. Again, when it comes to a volunteer service, there's still different levels of people that are involved. And that dynamic is is slowly changing here. However, you still, again, being around people, know what other people's skills and aspects are that you can leverage, and you know what guys are going to be the guys that can do the really demanding tasks. However, like I say, the the newer the newer recruits, the newer system that is now in place tests those new recruits, tests those new minds, and ensures that we've got fit people coming in. And we are slowly seeing that that dynamic change. Um, and I think it's very difficult in the volunteer service to try and force people, regardless of um, fitness levels. It's, it's difficult to push somebody into the gym, uh, as, as I'm sure everyone is, is very aware. Scott, you got some on that as well? Yeah. Um, I, I think one thing I try to do, and that's what the training section try to do, is is we make that, those practices on, on, on our nights. Uh, we actually make them very, very physically demanding. So it's almost like they're working out every Thursday um, 
you know, we, we make them do uh, rick skills. We'll we'll do a scenario where we're just doing a basic live fire, like we're we're basically just doing some penciling work, and all of a sudden one of us will be like, okay, that firefighter's down, rit team get activated. So now it becomes uh, essentially a rit scenario. So they're 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 getting that, you know, maybe that extra push of of being in shape, doing a firefighter skill. Um, so when they come out, they're they're bagged and they're like, oh, maybe I should work out more, or maybe that was my workout for the week. <clears throat> um, like Carl says, we can't mandate them, um, but I think most of our guys. Um, we always say we're like we're like diesel engines. We're not like uh, Ferraris. We just keep chugging along. Um, no one's in spectacular. I don't think anyone in here is in spectacular shape, but we're all in good shape. Um, I think, and I think that's what we we kind of strive for. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm weird. Uh, I'm actually looking at building something right now um, that again open up to the fire family. Hey, this is what I'm doing. If you would like to join me. Uh, you're more than welcome and it's something now for me especially recently I actually I tore my meniscus in my knee so I was out for a while and uh, I was I got lazy because I couldn't couldn't do a lot so now with that being fixed I'm back in that regime as well so how good can you girl well Scott how did I hurt my knee I uh <laughs> Scott it seems like every time I break or tear something Scott's there I don't know <laughs> and it's always at jiu-jitsu funnily enough Carl stood up. All, <laughs> all he did was stand up in jiu-jitsu and he hurt his knee. <laughs> it wasn't any spectacular move. It was he stood up. <laughs> uh, that's the thing with, uh, with jiu-jitsu though. You'll find any, any injuries you've got because you're in so many weird positions. Yeah. I had the same thing, right? Before I, I tore one of mine, um, it locked up in, in class, you know, and I was like, oof. So yeah, I, I totally I can envision exactly how you did it. You were probably in like a pi- pigeon position and went to stand up and like <laughs> pinched the damn thing that was it she tore up yeah 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 so i think fitness fitness is one of those things that obviously especially when summertime comes for us uh it's extremely hot here we get very very hot weather um it's kind of like the california of canada area Uh, we get real high heat um it's very desert mountain kind of side on either side of us in the valley and obviously then we're in the uh, fire season when it comes to wildfires so we are at some points out fighting these fires for hours and hours, like six, seven, eight hours. Depends on the fire, really. Depends on what the situation and conditions are. Yeah, and then back the next day. And we're climbing these mountains and, and uh, in full bunker a lot of the time as well, depending on the situations. So there's those times as well where that fitness level really, really is important. And you can definitely tell the difference in people. We try and make it so that everyone obviously can sustain. And like Scott says, it's a, it's a diesel engine. It's a continuous push. And it's very rare that we get people drop. We <clears throat> tend to just keep on chucking. Yeah, and that's the expectation. Like I've said this a few times, you know, you don't need to look like a Ken doll. You don't need six-pack abs and, you know, be diesel or whatever the freaking term is. But, um, but yeah, but you need to be able to work. And I think that's... That's why it's so strange that it's a hard push to to really make fitness a priority in in our professions because it's a win win. Not only are you better at your job and obviously less likely to die on the job, but you're more likely to enjoy a retirement, obviously for the career people, um, versus you know just kind of scraping through and then four or five years later you die and don't even get to enjoy what you worked for thirty years for. Yeah, absolutely. I. I- I understand again now, like I, I went through a phase where I was extremely unfit 
Um, and then I actually joined the fire department and joining the fire department forced me to take a hard look at my life, my choices, um, and all of my bad habits. Um, I ended up quitting smoking. I started working out. Uh, yeah, I did. I was a smoker. Yeah. <laughs> at least 20 a day. Well, it was, it's English mentality, right? Like, so England mentality, at least where I, where I grew up was cigarettes and a pint in the pub and Cornish pasty around a corner. It was, but that was, that was pub. That was I, think it's like, I think it's like a hot pocket. There you go. <laughs> but that, that terrible, um, that terrible, those terrible habits followed me. When I joined the fire department, I made a decision and I chose to change the way that I was acting in order to try and do that. I've fallen off many times and climbed back on. I'm back on right now and feeling great about it. But it, again, it's just you try and find that motivation inside of what you're doing with your day-to-day -day stuff as well. Because the thing with volunteerism is that while you are always on call with your pager ready to go, you've also got a full-time job. You've also got the family that you're working with. You've also got other activities that you're doing, regardless of whatever that is. Um, some of us work two or three jobs. Some of us have multiple different careers. And so when you're trying to pile that in with the volunteer service at the same time, it, it becomes that, that point of challenge of, I need to force myself to ensure that my health is pivotal in making sure that I can do my job. And then I need to try and find time for that too. And I don't think that that's ever an excuse. I think it's just something that everybody needs to still be aware of and make sure they try and make time for these things. I know with some people it's harder than others, but it's definitely important. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And that's why I think there's next to no excuse for a career department that's on for 24 hours that has access to at least some sort of equipment. You know, I mean, again, I want to talk about this in a moment as far as budget, but... I did, um, I don't know if we talked about this in, in our discussion, but, um, I did a workout one day with the sled that I bought and some sandbags and stuff. And someone made a comment was, well, it's nice if you have all the equipment. Well, firstly, I bought it. So there you go. But <laughs> secondly, I'm like, all right, fucker, game on. So yeah. I found some old hose and a pallet and some other shit and did exactly the same workout with a bunch of trash, you know? So for if you're on 24 hours and here you are, you've got volunteers and, you know, paid on call men and women who are working a complete other job and then coming to, to mitigate these fires and you're taking fitness seriously. There is no excuse for anyone who is paid to be at a fire station for 24 hours not to take ownership of their own health, period. James, I can tell you for a fact, if, if, uh, if tomorrow they turn around and said, okay, we're going to actually pay for all your, we'll pay for your house we'll pay your mortgage we'll pay your bills all you boys have to do is fight fire and train to fight fire for the rest of your days i'm pretty sure everybody here would be on board straight away fitness wouldn't be an issue because we would be out lugging hose and trying different tactics daily um we actually went to a uh, we went to a department we visited a department uh, when we were out doing a bit of a road trip and uh there was a paid uh pay group full-time there full-time guys and scott actually brought up the question of oh okay so how often do you train because it's always for us we always want to try and find more opportunities and just because we have said we train on thursdays that's the that's the time that we put in normally that's the time that we have to do um obviously through uh, the, the, the mandated oh, yeah that's yeah, our mandated training day yeah but, yeah. but outside of that 
we we get in a lot more whenever we can. As soon as we get the opportunity to light that burn building up, we're out there playing around. Scott, if you want to take from that? Yeah, and so we 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 I asked this, this full time guy. I said, "Well, how often do you guys train?" And he's like, "Well, they don't pay us to train; they pay us to put up fires." <laughs> and I, we're like, we're actually kind of all shocked. We're like, "So you don't have like a day where you train, or you don't do it like when you're on shift?" He's like, "No, no, we just kind of we just do it. We do, we just we just we just sit in the hall." And we were we were shocked. Um, but he did but, see the volunteers. But he but he said, "Oh, but the volunteers train every Wednesday." Sometimes <laughs> we're like, "Okay, so sometimes you jump in with the volunteers, but your your full career is to is to fight fires." And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, "But the but the city doesn't pay us to train." That's what you said. Then you asked him when the last time he was in burn building, or he he brought it up. He's like, the "Last time I was in a in a burn building doing training was in fire school." And that was like eight years prior. He said, "So, <laughs> oh my god, uh, yeah." I don't think everybody gets a burn building, but it's like yeah. you know, it didn't seem like these because you know, I I would envision if we were a full time department, um, there'd be hoses out every day outside in our in our tarmac or in our um, parking lot. Um, we'd be doing drills and we'd be doing you know force entry. We'd be doing lots of different stuff. Um, so I, I, I'm hoping that's just a one-off, but maybe not. Um, cause we've talked to other people like yourself and, uh, and, uh, Jason down in Seattle and, you know, those guys, you know, those guys train really hard. They, they, after every call, they sit around and they discuss the call and they, and they go, um, they figure out a way to, to make it better. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen both ends of the spectrum. I've worked for, for departments and, and especially crews in that department where, you know, it, it's, it's within reason. I'm not saying that for 24 hours, all we do is train, you know, but every single day you do something. It could be learning about, you know, a new saw or breaking one down or, you know, doing, doing a chalk training of a roof prop, you know, whatever it is, something, something that's completely non, uh, it requires very little equipment or you're out there pulling hose and you go run a medical call and then we'll see some commercial building and it's got a weird door on the back. So we'll talk about forceful entry and then we'll, you know, actually do a hose lay, keep it dry. Um, and then I had the complete opposite where I'm in, you know, basically what in my opinion would be the highest funded fire department on the planet whose union has, has managed to get them to say they can't train when it's too hot they can't train when it's rain they can't train when it's dark you know and it's just it's a complete disgrace a complete disgrace and it creates this cancerous you know mentality of anytime anything's hard you you want to you want to go to union and, and complain about it you know so i've seen both sides of the spectrum and obviously you know i prefer all the way on the aggressive side but even the middle ground is is a good place to be but yeah if you if you are not trying to make yourself better, you know, as a volunteer, you know, start there, then certainly as someone who's getting paid to do it, every single day on a profession where we have so many different potential calls, then to me, it, it, you're in the wrong profession. You really are. Because if you can't see the value of training and the fact that lives depend on what we do, then there's so many other careers that you're probably really good at, but life-saving careers are not the ones for you. Yeah, we we agree. I mean, we we're obviously we're not perfect. We're always trying to get better, and that's part of what we try and do with our our material, with our content that we put out through our podcast. It's the same thing. It's just about having discussions, talking about things, trying to figure out solutions as problem solvers. That is basically our job every single time we hit the fire the the fire ground. We're just trying to solve those those problems, but. The, the biggest thing for us, and we talk about it a lot, is inoculation. Making sure that you are ready 
for the situations in the situations that you're going to be in. So like you said, when you're training in heat, well, you know what? When it's 40 degrees outside, we're still out there in our full bunker gear with we can't light up the burn building, but we are simulating because of wildfires. We're simulating the same conditions. We're smoking out those buildings. We're still running the same scenarios. That inoculation to that heat, we go into the burn buildings when we're at, when obviously season's good and we're allowed to light those things up. We cook those things as hot as we can get because we know that's a situation that we're going to be in. If your body's ready for it, the actions that you are going to go through and that, that, Again, that methodology in your brain, you're burning that in. You're consistently retraining. You're going through those different tiers of layering that we've built in the training system to allow you to deal with these problems without thinking. But adding that heat level, adding that stress, that inoculation level to it really helps ingrain that into our members. Because without that, when you do get into those situations, you're not used to what's going on. You're not used to having to feel that heat. And if you haven't been used to doing those things at the same time as being able to perform the actions, then you're likely to fail. <clears throat> yeah, no, I agree completely. Is it Customado? I think it is. It was Mike Tyson's trainer had that famous uh, saying, everyone has a plan so they get punched in the face. Well, I think that's it. That's what heat is. That's what, you know, wearing the gear. That's what doing 20 flights of stairs before you do whichever evolution you're doing. That's, that's the punch in the face part. And I couldn't agree more. If you're not adding realism to training, then you're just setting yourself up for a huge fall when, when the shit hits the fan because you do fall to your level of training. I've seen it several times now as a fireman on a fire ground where, where, a firefighter who I know damn well, never trained, literally falls apart and becomes fucking useless on a fire scene. And again, I don't get me wrong. I am not the best firefighter in any of the realms. I, I, I forget knots in a day. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, you show me the clamshell on extrication and then the next day I'm like, shit, how does it go again? You know, I'm, I've, I have to train because my brain is like a sieve. So I have to reinforce it. But, you know, all, there's so many skills. But to be the, be so arrogant that you think that when it happens is when you're going to be able to figure it out is, is, you know, is, is unacceptable in this profession. So I couldn't agree more. You have to train. And if you got someone that has been deconditioned, then yeah, you layer it. You start off in just, you know, going through if you need to in, in gym clothes and then throw your gear on, then throw a pack on, then add some heat, whatever it is. But if you are not cr- creating the same, if not worse than we're going to see in real life, then how do you expect these people to perform when people are literally hanging out of windows? Yeah, I think my goal when uh, when I'm kind of talking with the train guys is uh, I'm always trying to think like, can we make this training as hard like harder than real life? So when when guys get back from real calls, they're like, well, I wish we got to do this. I wish we got to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want them to be like, I have so much more stuff in my in my arsenal to use, but we only use this much on this call. Um, I want them to have that. You know, training should be the toughest thing, and, and maybe that comes back to the the martial art thing, you know, your toughest fight should be in the, in the dojo or on the mats. And then uh, when you get in a real fight, it's, you know, it's over so fast. You're like, Oh, that was it. I've been training my whole life for that. Um, and that's what I, that's how I envision when we, when we train, I want them to be like, Oh, training is the toughest thing we do. And then the fires are the easy thing. Yeah. 
And obviously, let me let me underline as well. You can do it very safely. So you know, you can make a, you can make a heat, you know, a fire hot without being ridiculous. And you can in- increase, you know, rehab when it's a hot day. You can strip off. You can put, you know, cold towels on everyone's head and 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 be sensible like you would in a real fire. You want to get people down to where they're able to work again. So you're not putting people in dangerous situations, but you have to stress them and then obviously give them the time to recover from each event. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, I want to ask you one kind of segue as well that I'm always curious about. So here we are sitting in, um, you know, North America. So, you know, America and Canada in 2020, where, you know, like I point this out a lot. If you look in, in an average suburban street at the vehicles sitting in the driveway, compared to most of the world, we're a very affluent couple of countries. Yet we still rely a lot on volunteer fire departments, sometimes in very built up urban or suburban cities, which is very strange. What is your view on the ability to actually just have a career department where you are? So that way you're not waiting for people to respond from their homes, you know, to 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 maybe save a life for someone who's bleeding out or is about to be, you know, engulfed by fire. Um yeah, are you so remote that that volunteer or paid on call is the only way, or is there potential for you to become a career department? Um, there's always a potential. I just think the, uh, the, the tax base in smaller areas is, is just not enough to, to, to warrant it. Um, with us, we're very, like, we can leave the hall within five minutes of a page. Mm-hmm. We'll be pretty much anywhere in our, air, in our fire district within 10 minutes. And that's, like, in our fire district, pretty big. Um, so we have a very fast response time. Um, and I think some of that lens, the fact that we don't have these... Um, um, the salary that we have to put into things, we actually can buy very good equipment. Um, I know when we went, we, we've done some training on some of the paid uh, departments. Like we go to their, their hall to train um, other courses and we're like, Oh, we're going to see the good stuff. Now we're going to let's open that. And they're going to show us some really cool equipment. And they open it. We're like, Oh, we had that in the 80s. <laughs> they're like, well, we can't afford it <laughs> because most of their budgets spent on salary, which is unfortunate. Um, but that's that's kind of the give and take you know we we can get we have a, a pretty good budget for a small town that we can spend on equipment because our salaries we don't have salaries um you know our you know our payroll is probably half of one firefighter for the whole year um that's that's my take on it i don't know if you guys have anything yeah i think with that as well um whether or not they ever would here i'm not sure but for us we also raise a lot of our own money um, too, because there are those niceties, those nice things that we definitely want, those extra things that we could potentially have. So, for example, every other year we run a firefighter seminar for volunteers. Unfortunately, Scott throws his hands in the air. Unfortunately, this year we were actually supposed to be running it in May, uh, but obviously with everything that's going on, everything's had to be cancelled. But normally what we do is every every other year we have around 400 firefighters come to our town and we set up a massive different firefighting skills events live fire mvi forceful entry uh high angle rescue loads and loads of different training sessions only around 20 something and we have an entire weekend where we as a as a group as a department teach others as well as get other instructors in of all these different fire skills um, and from that, we, we get a good chunk of money, which then allows us to purchase those extra niceties like the burn buildings, like uh, extra things for our training grounds. 
those things then allow us to become better and allow us to provide better services to the town. And in turn, then we learn those skills. And again, every two years, we, we get to then teach these things to other firefighters that come to town and, and have that experience as well. So, I mean, in the Valley, we do have a few paid departments. Um, absolutely. Uh, when it comes to volunteers, I think in US and Canada, I think it actually allots for around 70, I think it was about 73% of departments are volunteer as opposed to paid. So, or combination. I, no, I think that's combination. Yeah, that combination. Yeah. Very, very pop, popular now um, where you're, you're running the majority of your staff is still going to be coming off pager. But uh, you might have, um, like, Todd can speak to that a bit, actually, because uh, they just transitioned to a combination department where you've got, uh, what, two, two to three? Yeah, so right now we just, we just did this transition uh, last July. So we have our first full-time uh, paid chief, um, and then we have a full-time deputy chief right now as well that just started. Uh, and then this July, we're going to have a second deputy chief spot that's paid. So only three, three paid positions. Um, and it's important to say, too, that those paid deputy chief salaries and chief salaries aren't your typical salaries that you would see in a full-time department. They're, they're quite substantially lower. Um, However, the rest of us were all still paid on call when we when we attend. Um, but I think, like looking at, at you guys with your department and your membership base, you're meeting the criteria of your response times and your training. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the numbers to pull from. Uh, whereas <clears throat> our town, we've been really fighting with recruitment, and it's really hard to uh, get that that good base of firefighters. Like we're getting really low turnouts. Um, so that's why the town and the chiefs have to start looking at this other model now because we're just not retaining people. Yeah. So, so for me, from, from a purely, you know, outsider point of view, when I first came over here and we have, uh, you know, um, I guess technically paid on call firefighters in the town that I grew up in. But when you look nationally or internationally, and then you ask about priorities, like what is the most important thing to a community and to their families? You know, the, you don't see volunteer police forces. You know what I mean? Really, you, 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 they're paid because it's important. You know, and the same with, with schools. I've never met a volunteer teacher, you know, in the school, but for some reason, the fire service, um, you know, we are, we, we're for so much, but yet we're the ones they call for everything. When someone's dying, you know, if they're not being actively shot at that moment, it's, it's the fire service slash EMS. So it's not, uh, you know, uh, I'm not damning the the volunteer side, but I think it's kind of being taken advantage of in a nation that is so incredibly wealthy. Um, and, you know, obviously they're, they're, I don't know, the magic economical uh, matrix that would allow maybe some federal aid to, to support some of the more remote stations and departments. But I know of many, you know, departments that are volunteer that are in very, very, very dense urban areas that, that, you know, clearly it's just being kept off the table because, well, they did it for free. So why are we going to start paying them now? And, you know, that's all well and good until someone dies because it took someone, you know, 15 minutes, no fault of their own to stop whatever they were doing in their job, get in their car, go to the station, bunker up, grab the vehicle and then get to the, you know, to, to the incident. So that's what I don't understand is, is when everything, I mean, I see people driving Winnebago's. When I was younger, Winnebago was for a movie star. That was it. When they were on set, they had a Winnebago. Now every man and his dog has got a Winnebago parked in their damn driveway. 
you know so if if we are so freaking wealthy that we can afford speedboats and jet skis and winnebagos i don't understand why we still have so many volunteer fire stations yeah i think it um i think that's maybe why the combination is happening now because um you just i mean you know on any fire as you know and we know you don't know what how many resources you're going to need so um i guess maybe that's part of it like the station the staff a, a complement of, of six or seven or do you you know have one or um so i think that's why these combination departments where you got a couple full-time guys and then um you got the rest are volunteer i guess that's maybe why it's going kind of that direction i don't we're not there yet but maybe one day we will be i think if our response time was less it might be um <laughs> but we i our station is is kind of centered right in town and and we have a fair amount of guys that live very close and you know we you know, we had a structure fire a couple months back and the dispatcher they sent us the logs and i think we were on scene within five minutes of the page mm-hmm. and that's been they, they were like that's like comparable that's easily comparable to some of the uh some of the other uh full-time departments up our valley staff, yeah I think that also comes back to, though, it, it comes back to the eagerness for every single member. I, I, and I've heard this from, again, listeners where they're like, well, how do you get more people to show up? Well, for us, if you if you don't get to the hall within those those three, four minutes, you aren't getting on the first truck. You're not getting on the second truck. You might be getting tender or you're getting radio room. <laughs> like it's. It's a, it's a fight to get on a truck. Everyone's so eager to get on the call. They're so eager to get out into the public and do their thing. They've got all this training, which they're so passionate about, and they're eager to use, and they want to be able to go out and demonstrate that. And it's a really fantastic dynamic, which we are extremely lucky to have. Because, again, we have these conversations with so many people, and they're just, they, they don't have that. They don't understand that, and it's very difficult for them to grasp. And it, again, it wasn't like that before. It used to be here. It used to be a lot of people. Everyone would still definitely rush to get here um, to go on the call, but a lot of people would prefer to drive. Now, you, you try and get in the back. I mean, there's three guys in there, and you're still trying to climb over the top to try and see if you can get the SCBA on quicker than the other guys, right? Like, it's a, it's a really, really unique dynamic, which I think some people definitely do share, but it's, it's tough to find. Uh, you say now. So was there... Was there a kind of pivotal moment where you changed the philosophy in the department? Uh, I think through different chiefs, um, you know, through different leadership, it happens like naturally. Um, Cause we used to have a, you know, years ago we had a chief that was pretty uh, defensive on everything. Um, you know, and, and no fault of his, like he, he wanted, he was very, very safe, which, you know, we're, we're still very, very safe. But to him, I think aggressive was like a bad word. And we tried to explain to them, no, aggressive, you know, aggressive means we're still safe. We're just getting in there. We're just doing things quicker and we're doing things more efficiently. Um, and then we got a, a much more aggressive chief. Some days we were over, he was overly aggressive. So that way we were like, okay, so that's, that's, that, you know, we took some um, lessons from, from him. And then our current chief, he's, he's kind of a, in between both those guys. Um, he's very, uh, very open to our hard training. But he's also um, knows when to throttle us back, and so that's kind of where we're at right now. That, and then also combined with uh, with our new methods of, of training. I mean, the training ground that we have now—that's that's been a huge thing. Because before that, we were you know a lot of stuff was make believe, or we'd go to the same place, hit the same hydrant over and over again. Um, now with the training ground, we can we can set up huge scenarios. We can 
do weight. We can do all sorts of different skill sets. Um, so I think those two things combined made us um, more. So I don't want to say in the past we were slow at response. We, we weren't. We were still quick. But when we got there, a lot of times it was like, okay, now what do we do? Um, so that's kind of where we're at now. We're, 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 we're to the point where guys don't have to be told um, exactly what to do when we get there. And I think that's huge on the, on the whole uh, kind of the Jocko philosophy of, uh, of, of decentralized command. And, and that comes about, all comes back to the training we do. Because if you train well, you don't have to hold people's hands when we get to the scene. Absolutely. All right. Well, you mentioned the podcast a little earlier. So what made you guys start the Down to Fight Fire podcast? Uh, <laughs> it was actually... <laughs> Uh, I actually turned around to Scott and because Scott's got a, a bit of an interesting past and he's, uh, he's he's very you know leadership driven, and so when I spoke to Scott, I was like, you know, you should probably have your own podcast because it was something that I I always listen to. I listen to Jocko, I listen to yourself, um, and I've been listening to many of Tim Ferriss, like all sorts of people. Because again, I used to spend I being a uh, I was a real estate agent, still am for a bit, but I spent a lot of time in my vehicle traveling around. So for me, radio after a while just it does not work for me at all. It bores me and news is just filtered anyway. So it just, it wasn't my thing. So podcasts, learn, be educated in your car. You could learn something new. And uh, I started listening and listening more. And then when I, when I spoke to Scott about it and I joined the department and everything was going on there, I was like, you know, you should do something. He's like, oh yeah, we should do something. And then it turned from him doing it and me providing him all the equipment to do it into us doing it. And then that just kind of grew from there. But the idea behind it was, we do all these things. We're again, a, a paid on call volunteer department. Um, we do things very differently than a lot of other departments. Um, and we're successful at it. We've got a different, uh, different dynamic, a different way of thinking about certain things. And it was, it worked. It was something that we thought would be valuable to share with other people. Because again, we were talking about budgets. People don't have these budgets. People don't have, these people that want to go out sometimes these training officers um to actually adapt these different situations learn new techniques start doing their own research i can't tell you how much time the training guys put in to be able to get us to the level where we're at um scott you you should probably take from there yeah i mean i think well it started off with carl said uh, we actually we didn't even know what kind of podcast we were going to make no we our first our first go at it was it was just horrendous it wasn't even it wasn't a firefighter podcast it was a it was a gong show was what it was <laughs> um but that name was already taken so <laughs> so uh shortly thereafter we actually were like well what what's one thing that we all have in common here and obviously volunteer firefighting and then uh we actually listened to a few different ones and some of them are very dry. <laughs> some of them are very like tactically orientated and, you know, you're trying to stay awake. <laughs> and, you know, through listening to, to like Joe Rogan and, uh, and those, those sorts of guys, we realized there has to be, you, you can't just throw the knowledge up there. You have to have, to have humor in it and you have to have um, people just sitting and talking. Mm. And that's kind of like, what that's what we aim to do. It's like, like just guys sitting around like Todd's saying like the bumper talking. It's yeah. like that's what we're doing. We're just recording it. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Put a mic in the center of the room for any conversation <laughs> we'd probably be having anyway and just direct it in a way that we would probably do anyway in in a general conversation, just more of a an interviewer, interviewee kind of way, really. I just try and guide it in a way that it would normally go. 
Yeah. Um, just in a manner that sounds better, really. Yeah, you definitely need someone to, to moderate because we've tried it without Carl. And- uh, <laughs> everyone goes through. <laughs> just goes through. Um, but, you know, we go off on tangents sometimes. and mm-hmm. But I think people like that because it shows that we're not reading from a manual. We're not just... It's real. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's amazing how much uh, gold comes from those tangents you know people apologize oh i'm sorry i went off on one for a bit i'm like no that's perfect that's what we want that we know who you are you've obviously told your story on on many other podcasts and you've got three books but it's those those what i call the space between the lines is really where a lot of the the extra knowledge lies yeah yeah it's true it's true we enjoy it i mean ultimately for us like we don't there's there's no monetary value in this in fact if we were to count up everything that we've put in so far we are way in the hole um, no one's paying us to do this right now. Any of the uh, shout outs and things that we do for discount codes, we're not we're not getting paid for any of that. That's something that we've reached out to these companies. We've had discussions with them. Hey, these are valuable products. These are valuable services. If you can give us a discount code that we can give to our listeners, we would greatly appreciate it. We don't get any kickback on any of it. It's not about that. And it never has been when we first started this. It's about just having a conversation, recording it, and passing it out so other people can get something out of it. Because as soon as you start getting into a situation where you feel like you're doing something for money, then the whole content breaks down. Your, your message has to change because now you're, you're mentally, your, your message has changed to yourself. So if you start thinking more along the, you know, I'm going to start a podcast because it's going to make me rich. You're, you're nuts. It's not going to be the case. It's very rare that people like yourself, again, especially get into these situations where it works yeah well and i can say three and a half years in it it's not going to get you rich <laughs> like the, <laughs> especially not during the coronavirus outbreak <laughs> but no i agree 100 percent. like that's what i've heard even even from you know entrepreneurial people on on like tim ferris and that they say the same thing like if you're if your goal is to make money or be famous or you know whatever then you're going to fail immediately and i think that's why i listen to like Joe Rogan, perfect example. He's already a TV celebrity. He's a comedian. He's the commentator for the UFC. He's just a curious student of life. And that's, that's what I, I found. And I think that's, you know, what I see in interviews of yours that I've heard is the same thing is you're just trying to make the world a little bit better. And obviously financially, it would be great because I'm the same three and a half years of paying all the, you know, all the fees myself pretty much. Um, you know, it would be nice to one day be able to at least break even, <laughs> but, um, you know, that's not the goal. And, and, and you, I'm sure have had the, the same kind of messages that I've had where you realize that these guests that you get on are making a difference and that's worth more than any monetary value. Absolutely. We've, we've had, we have a lot of people reach out to us and thank us for the things that we're doing. And honestly, you know, it's so humbling. I mean, we're not, we're not trying to do this for us. We, we're just doing it because we're, we're talking anyway and we may as well get together and talk about it and see if it helps somebody else. And it's the same thing with our video content. You know, we started up our YouTube channel um, and we post the videos both on Facebook and on YouTube. But we do those things because there's still people that we look at the content online and say, hey, what is it that isn't broken down properly that I don't really fully understand? Let's do a video on that and let's make it as basic as we possibly can, because these things aren't difficult. They're not challenging tasks. It's just a process that you have to run through. And because of the way that we, again, go back to going back to training, the way that's been broken down, the layering system that we use, we've now used that in our videos. And it tends to work quite well 
in portraying a message for different tactics, skills. And then obviously we've got other things where we just like to stuff Scott in a building with an RZ mask and spray him with pepper spray. That was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, it's, a, it's a weekend and we're like, what should we do? Well, let's go make some video content, right? Like we have these discussions, we do these things, and it's a lot of fun to do. We'd be doing it anyway, so why not record it and see if somebody else can get some value? Absolutely. You know, we should do a, a pepper spray with those paper masks everyone's wearing at the moment and see how completely ineffective yeah. they're going to be for viruses. <laughs> they go fantastic, I'm sure. I'm all under crowd for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you right now, N95 did not work right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a bizarre thing that most so many of us have, you know, went through some sort of microbiology training in the medical community and, you know, are, are fully aware of how minute these viruses are. And yet, you know, a piece of a piece of cloth over your face is going to miraculously stop these <laughs> these subatomic <laughs> particles from going into your lungs. I'm 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 no genius, but that doesn't seem to make sense to me. But <laughs> but hey, all right. Well, then, staying on the podcast. Then, so first, you people listening, where can they find the podcast and the YouTube channel? So you can definitely find our podcast. We uh, we actually push it out onto every platform um, when it comes to. So you can find us on obviously uh, iTunes. Uh, we actually use a service called Anchor, and uh, Anchor automatically syndicates to everything. It's actually now a subservice of Spotify, um, and they just recently picked them up and purchased them. So it pushes it out to all these different platforms, including uh, all Android platforms, Google, um, and then I think there's also there's, there's about 10 different platforms. So it's really easy to find us with that through Facebook as well. You can find us at uh, the Volunteer Firefighter Podcast. Um, you can also find us on YouTube. YouTube, we are named the uh, Down to Fight Fire. Um, so you can find us there on YouTube and then check out our video content there as well. Yeah. And the old Insta. And the Instagrams, yeah. <laughs> Instagram. Yeah, so we're on Instagram as well. Uh, again, uh, DTFF, the Volunteer Firefighter Podcast. <clears throat> we are on uh TikTok now. <laughs> You're a 12 year old girl, you can watch it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what's your Pornhub handle? <laughs> <laughs> That's a different DTF. <laughs> <laughs> Only on premium. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, let's just go to some closing questions. Uh, the first one I love to ask, and this doesn't have to be from each of you, it could be collective or individually, but is there a book that you love to recommend? Got. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think the anything uh, Jocko, if, if you're if you're especially when you're just getting into like leadership or, or any of the stuff, um, any of the any of the Jocko books. I think the, the most recent one he wrote is actually kind of really uh, what the leadership tactics and strategies of field manual. Um, it's kind of a all of his stuff like a, put together. A review. Yeah. So if you've never if you've never uh, listened to Jocko on his podcast or or read any of his books, uh, I, I strongly recommend that that field manual that he just wrote because. It def definitely has a lot of lessons and you can open it up just like a manual. You can open it up and find like, oh, I have a problem with this. Okay, well, there it is. There's the answer. And uh, I know it's helped us a lot in not only leadership here, also my leadership at my current work and mm -hmm. and even on, during training and stuff. Yeah, so I'd, I'd recommend that. I don't know. Yeah, anything, Jocko, um, even for your, your kids, the, the Warrior Kid books yeah. definitely helped my, my son um, to redirect his thinking towards uh, different, uh, more positive ways and leadership and taking ownership. And um, yeah, yeah, for me, I, I, if it was away from, away from books, maybe I would say uh, take a look at uh, 
Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. He's a he's a nice. big <laughs> he's a big uh, motivator for me. He's very much a, a, a speaker and talk. He has many books, but he talks a lot about uh, um, focusing on happiness and success and the difference between the two, and you know, uh, making sure that happiness is always the one thing you're going for. And again, the same message that we try and push out in the sense that do something because you enjoy it, not because it's going to make you money. Do something because you enjoy it. You'll be way happier, even if you're making just minimum doing what it, whatever it is. Just always do what makes you happy, as opposed to something that is going to make you cash. Would be for mine. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah I think like, again, and back to the Jocko books. You know, like the whole podcast um, group started me on the Jocko stuff um, through Scott and Carl chatting, and and yeah, the leadership strategies and taking ownership it's huge and it's really helped me in my career and how I progress and how I talk to other people in my business at uh, work and it helps. And then um, the other one, which I, I actually haven't started reading yet, but uh, is the Pelt, um, Joel Struthers, yeah, Joel Canadian in the uh, French foreign legion. That's the next one on the list here. I want to do that. Um, currently I'm finding it hard to find some time with all the <laughs> other reading that I have to do with work for things that are going on and progressing, but uh, it's on my bucket list to, Okay. Could you repeat that one again? You cut out right when you said it. What was the book and the the author? It's uh, Joel Struthers. Uh, the book is Appel, a Canadian in the French Foreign Legion. Appel, brilliant. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to put down Backdraft Two as all your favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but I, I would love to go to to documentaries though. So rather than go movie for everyone first, but is there any documentaries that you guys have loved? I uh I like watching and again the names would probably escape me but I like watching anything on um kind of the the social dynamics and things like that but I think for me people are always the the key aspect in every success and every failure and for me knowing how different people work is how I make myself successful in talking with them so me I'm more of a I like watching documentaries that talk about people why we are who we are what happened to us kind of that whole we're broken children and we're all just trying to get somebody to uh to listen that's what i like to listen to because again just knowing how to talk to people is by far one of the most valuable skills i think you can have scott uh, i know one thing i've been kind of focusing on lately is on, on uh the world war ii it's like they have the new uh, World War II in color. In color, yeah. yeah. And it's it's interesting because I, I I like history and I so I I watch it and, and there's so many lessons that you could learn from those people back then. Um, even like for right now, just dealing with hard times. Like you think we have hard times because we have to stay in our house. Yeah, those people didn't even have houses. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, no one's dropping bombs on them. No one's coming and taking them out of their homes and put them in camps and stuff. So just that stuff um, really really is beneficial. And also even the lessons from the battles. Like you can see, you know, when they start, you know, when the Nazis start losing, it's it's because they they have a weird command system. They have a you know a totally centralized command system. One guy has to make all the decisions, and you know the Americans and the and the Canadians and the British, they didn't they they, they were more decentralized. And it really just goes to show you that sort of uh, system how the two opposites when they meet, which one works better. Well, speaking of World War II, I had a, a bizarre epiphany a few years ago where I'm 45, about to turn 46. And so I realized that when I turned 30, 
my lifespan was the was how long prior to I was born that World War II was still going on, that the genocide was going on in Europe, in you know, like next door to my country. And you know, when when we were all little, you think of World War II as you know ancient ancient history, but this was you know less than my lifetime ago. When I was fifteen, between now and when I was fifteen ago. Before I was born was when we were doing that, sending human beings to gas chambers, you know, for, I mean, God, I don't even know, no one can even rationalize why, you know, the insanity, but yeah, it's, it's crazy. And we talk about learning lessons and here we are now boohooing about how hard it is to, to not be able to go to bowling, you know? So yeah, I, 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 we do need to go back and remind ourselves of where we were a very, very, very short time ago and how lucky we are now and how we can just support the people that are out there making the country still move while we're doing our part to try and slow the spread of this bizarre virus. Yeah, yeah I saw a, I saw a meme the other day, actually. It had uh, a picture of a, uh, a lady who was sat having a cup. It was a World War II picture. She was sat having a cup of tea on the, the remains of rubble of what was her house because it got hit by a bomb. And then next to it, it had uh, a picture of uh, somebody nowadays just clutching toilet rolls and <laughs> all different sorts of yeah. things. And, and then it just says, like, you know, look at, look at how we used to cope. And this is what we've become. Yeah. Well, even 9-11. I mean, look at New York, you know, 20 years ago. And you know, the amazing adversity that they overcame and got through. And, you know, now, again, it was supposed to be banding together and one of the things i've heard from several people that were in you know new york when it happened was i miss i miss uh, september 12th that's when everyone was banding together and my god we are so far from that right now it appears from what we're being told you know through the television so i think we need to we need to take a step back and really ask how we can help not how we can hoard absolutely and you know there's been lots of cool things like i was watching uh there was a video from out of Italy. All the people are, are locked in and they, well, there's been, the, the, everybody's been clapping for the emergency workers. That's uh, pretty cool. That actually just happened in Vancouver. But there was a, last night I was watching it in Italy, someone had a huge stereo playing and they were playing Iron Man, or not Iron Man, uh, Black Sabbath. Yes. And when everyone in the street singing, like everyone in their, all their apartments are singing along. It's pretty cool. So like stuff like that is pretty awesome. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And that's, but that's the thing. That's the other countries. So we got to learn from them. We got to we got to foster that because I think that's awesome. I saw one of uh, a guy leaving leading an exercise class, and it was a kind of square again of blocks of flats, and he was on the roof of this middle or you know whatever this was this this area in the middle, and there's always people on the balcony doing jumping jacks and just following along with him. You know, I mean that is that is so awesome. So there are so many positive things that we can pull out of this, and I think that's it. That's that's the lesson. Are we gonna? Are we going to actually get that lesson or are we going to fail miserably and do what we see in, in a lot of these negative videos that we're seeing coming out of the U.S.? Yeah, true. So, all right. But then um, transitioning to the next closing question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responder, military, and associated professions? Absolutely is, yeah. Um, there's a there's a fellow out of, uh, out of the Kootenays, which is, uh, what is it? Uh, east of us, um, named Doctor Nick Sparrow, and he's quite uh, he's quite unique in Canada because he's he's actually uh, um, he's a Brit. He's a Brit, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's he's brought kind of that idea of the medical system out there to to this smaller area, 
in the mountains east of us. And, you know, he runs his own, he, he's a volunteer, he's a, he's a ER doctor, and he runs his own basically volunteer response vehicle. And he, he will respond uh, to car accidents, to stabbings, to well, whatever. High, high acuity calls. Yeah, high acuity calls, and he, and he will bring his skill set and a whole lot of pretty badass equipment with him yeah. and do these things. And he, he is so passionate and, you know, it just makes, we went to a couple courses and a couple seminars and with him and he just makes you want to be better at everything, better. <laughs> like yeah. better at medical for sure. And everything. I'm um, Todd, you can speak to it. Yeah. He was, uh, so he was a medical for, uh, the, the attack, attack group, um, over in the UK and he's brought that training up here now. And, uh, he put on a course called our attack, the rescue trauma and casualty care. And uh, he really thinks outside the box um, on how small communities need to start responding to certain events. So he runs Kerpa, it's called Cooney Emergency Response Physicians. Mm. And uh, they've got a Tahoe fully equipped and they'll respond just to those high acuity calls and support the paramedics that are on scene. Um, because in that area, there's no advanced life support uh, practitioners. So it's, uh, it definitely ups the level of care um, he's now a medical director for the uh, fire services in his area as well. So they're working with a little bit higher um, protocols as well. Um, but yeah, his, his passion on changing the mindset of a community and of responders uh, to do more for patient-focused care is amazing. He's, he's a really passionate individual to talk to. Brilliant. He sounds amazing. So I'd love to connect with him if you guys are able to help me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we'll definitely get that connection we probably have another one more guy that we'd uh, ask to mention real quick yeah please yeah so um we met up with uh, a gentleman out of seattle fire uh jason allen he is the um owner operator designer for ignition usa and he came up with this pretty cool soft entry rescue tool called the sea rat um but also just coming up his story um, we're actually going to have him on our podcast as well. Uh, his story coming up of how he got himself into the fire service, um, how he almost didn't get into the fire service. It was, it's, it's a really cool story. And then, um, you know, Seattle's generally been known for pretty aggressive, uh, cutting edge, um, fire attack. Um, uh, his, his story is really, really interesting. So we're excited to have him on ours to talk, to talk about it. Um, and I, I think it would do uh, well for yourself as well. Brilliant. Well, I'll listen to your interview first, and then uh, I'll reach out to him after that. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So then the last question to all of you, what do you do to decompress when you're not fighting fire and doing your regular jobs? <laughs> I, uh, I play video games. That's my <laughs> out. That is my escapism right there. I, uh, my brain is always go, go, go on so many different things. I, my son and myself, we play video games and, uh, that is my, my decompression that, and, um, now, um, working out and definitely taking over from that jujitsu is going to be the thing again here pretty soon. Now my knees feeling a lot better. Um, cause that is also a very, very good release. There's something very unique as I'm sure you're very aware there, James, I'm sure Scott will talk about it too, that, that the, the, the dynamic that you get on the mats and uh, getting that kind of just full release where you're concentrating solely on one thing, um, trying to not let Scott choke you out, um, is uh, <laughs> it, it, it forces your mind to focus on a single item and it definitely allows you to relax. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of men right now that are missing that feeling of having another man climb on his back and breathe into his ear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll get, I guess I'll take from Carl. Um, he just took my whole thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I definitely, uh, jiu-jitsu is my decompression. Uh, and for those reasons he just mentioned, you, you can't really think about what's going on wrong in the world when someone's, um, you know, triangle choking you or they got you bent in half and, you know, and it's so interesting when you train with different people. Uh, you know, our my my instructor currently, uh, you know, he's a black belt and he's very very good, and he'll twist me in a knot. But uh, the, another guy shows up that's that's also a black belt, and that's just the the different skills that he brings twist me in a whole different knot. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I you know you go to California and train with the Gracies, and they're a whole other level. And it's just it's crazy how um, you could say, yeah, I'm in jujitsu, and everyone thinks one thing, but it's it's just there's so many uh, levels to learn, and I think that's what I like. There's never going to be an uh, end to it. Um, you know, some people say, oh, you know, boxing, you know, there's like five techniques you really need to know, but you need to know them really well. Um, in jiu-jitsu, there's every day there's something new. And I mean, you, you, you come up with a technique, and next thing, there's a counter to that technique and a counter to that technique. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really good. And it also gets you comfortable being uncomfortable, yeah. which is really good for us in the fire service. Anyone else? Yeah, I think for me, I, I like uh... – I like social isolation. Just as a paramedic, you know, you're, you're always in people's face. You're always in their, in their business. And then you throw on top of that, the, the firefighting that we do at home, you know, when it's supposed to be your downtime as a, from a career. Um, I like going out, I like going out camping, um, small groups of friends, uh, close friends, all like-minded individuals. Um, <clears throat> You know, hunting and just being out in the out in nature and the environment. I love I love doing that stuff. Going for, you know, a ride on the quad or the bikes and just being out in nature and getting away from the the cities. Brilliant. Who have I got left? Um, yeah. So I'm just gonna say the exact same as Todd. Um, nothing, nothing sort of mellows me out and gets me gets me back and back kind of centered like going fly fishing or something, you know, get, getting out in a belly boat and passing a line. Um, you are, you are in the water. You're kind of back being at one with nature. Um, I generally know that I have my family over on the shore. They're sitting around a campfire. They're riding bikes. You are completely removed from, um, just that stress of society. Um, like Todd in, in my daily life, I'm, face-to-face with the public a lot so getting away from all that craziness and just getting yourself centered again uh for me that's key brilliant all right well firstly i mean it's it's funny how how many similarities there are with that question and family and um you know nature are pretty much the two things and then obviously fitness and working out whether it's jujitsu or you know whatever it is so you know again that's mirroring the answers that you guys have um, but I want to say thank you so much. It's been a, a fun conversation as I knew it would be. Um, you know, we're all sitting here in this bizarre isolation, uh, you know, part of our modern day history. But, uh, the beautiful thing about podcasting is we were still able to, to do this, you know, over Skype. So thank you for getting together and actually, you know, helping facilitate this great conversation. We really appreciate the opportunity there, James. And again, thank you so much for coming on over to chat with us uh, prior. This was, uh, again, this is all, uh, we're all seeming to be pushed in the same direction. We've got information. We want to share other people's stories. 
And uh, so we're we're very um, very humbled that you invited us on to have our conversation. So thank you.